All right, and then our last thing for you guys this morning is uh, we have an opportunity here from Ryan Pale. Ryan Pale is going to be speaking as we cover the book of Hebrews this morning. Ryan is our pastor of community outreach. He's also one of my dear good friends. He's in my accountability group, so I'll tell you guys all about his sins later on in the morning, but just kidding. Uh, but Ryan has an incredible passion for the Word of God, an incredible passion for the gospel. And one of the things I love about him and his influence on our staff is he brings an incredible passion for our community, and that we would be a church, that we would be a kind of community of men and women and believers in Jesus Christ that have an indelible mark on our community. And so you guys are going to be incredibly blessed to have the opportunity to hear from Ryan this morning. So why don't you guys give Ryan a hand? Okay, well, yeah, Trey, uh, Trey mentioned my name is Ryan Pale. I'm the uh, community outreach pastor here at Grace, and, uh, and I love all the things that Trey talked about. Uh, one of the things, one of my passions is seeing the way that the Lord uses the church to, um, to affect, to redeem, um, and to restore cities, uh, in our case, Bryan College Station. So those are one of my passions. I, um, I get heated, I get passionate, I even start to shake when talking about it sometimes. So, so yeah, I, I love that. We're going to be talking uh, this morning through Hebrews 4. We're continuing our series through through Hebrews. Um, if y'all would, turn in your Bibles. It's going to be Hebrews 4, and we're going to start in verses 14 and go all the way through 5. So if you are, oh, there's no page numbers on the Blue Bibles. Well, just go to the table of contents and, and you'll find it. Start flipping. Okay, so Hebrews 4, we're starting in verse 14, and I'm going to read all the way through 5:10. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer up both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is also beset with weaknesses, with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sin, for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become the high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow. What in the world? That's a long passage, and it says a lot of stuff. So we need some prayer. So if y'all would, bow with me, and, uh, and we'll get started. Lord, we give you thanks. Our great high priest, we thank you for for advocating for us, for forgiving us, um, uh, for offering yourself to us always. We thank you that we don't have to wait once a year to have forgiveness. We get it now. Thank you for these things, Lord. We, um, we pray this morning, can you please help us to understand what it means that you are our high priest? We just, it's hard to understand that. Can you please help us? Um, Lord, we pray all these things in uh, Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, uh, so one of the hard things about whenever you do uh, some sermon preparation, um, so obviously you want to handle the word well. So you want to you understand the word, everything that it's saying. You want to understand the scriptures. How did God intend them to be uh, spoke or understood? You also want to be able to communicate to people. And so I want all of you to be completely just um, enveloped in everything that I'm saying. And don't worry, that'll happen. But beyond that, I also want y'all, um, I, I want to say some like funny story or something that's going to um, uh, engage you that's going to get you kind of on my side, and we're going to talk, and we're going to laugh, and, and talk about goofy things. So I'm just going to say, I want to give you all a heads up, that's not the direction we're going this morning. In fact, the direction that we're going is going to be a little bit more weighty. It's going to be a little bit heavier. So um, I just wanted to give you all a little bit of a warning. I was thinking about, uh, for the illustration, I was trying to think, okay, what is it like to be Hebrew believers? What is it like to be the church who's constantly in danger of wavering from their faith, from giving up their faith? What is it like to be enduring persecution as the church? And this past week was extremely, extremely relevant. Y'all might have seen the image on y'all's uh, Facebook pages, and there are articles written um, about this. But if y'all didn't know, this is happening over in Libya. Um, the guys in orange suits are, um, are Egyptian believers. They're from the Coptic church. They are being marched on that beach simply because they are Christian, because they profess, confessed Christ. Um, the guys in the black are members of ISIS. They're a militant group. Um, and what they're doing is they're marching down this, this uh, beach ultimately to their death. The way this story ends is that they, um, uh, they line up, and there's video, of course, which is just uh, terrible, but they, they line up, and they're systematically killed and beheaded. And then the images and other Facebook pages just show the red water um, afterward, and so essentially their, um, their blood was shed because of their belief and their faith in Christ. And so I was thinking as we we're preparing for uh, Hebrews, I just thought, what is it like to be on that march? What questions are going through their heads? And, and similarly, we got to say for these, the Hebrew believers, we got to say, what questions are going through their heads during this time? If I put myself on that beach, what's running through my mind? I might be saying, well, one, we know that the peace of Christ um, overtakes us. Um, we're promised peace when we endure things like this. But at some point along the way, they're saying, what in the world is happening? What's going on right now? Is my faith real? What would it take for me to be saved from the situation that I'm in right now? What would happen if I turned to my captor and I said, okay, I'm out. Um, I did the Christian thing for a little bit, but um, please don't kill me. I'll worship Allah or whatever you need me to do. I will give it up because I want to spare my life. What questions are going through their mind? And so we, as we identify this, as we read through uh, the scriptures, on Hebrews especially, let's imagine the Hebrew church walking down this beach and moving toward their doom and destruction, enduring uh, tr- this persecution. And then we see with Hebrews, then we start to see, wait a second, um, they're asking, is Christ worth it? Is Christ worth enduring this end that we're marching toward? So that's when we see the flow of Hebrews is saying, um, uh, the writer is saying, yes, he's worth it. He's greater than angels. Yes, he's worth it. He's greater than Moses. Yes, he's worth it. Endure and you'll, um, uh, um, be, you'll enter into the, the rest, the eternal rest that he, that he offers. And then finally, we're moving now to the section that says, yes, he's worth it. He's greater than the high priest. So imagine yourself on the beach. You're marching, 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 asking all these questions. Why should I hold on? Why is Christ worth it? And just think to yourself, what would my pastor need to write to me for me to say, yes, 
Christ is worth it? What do I need to hear that makes this all worth it in the end? So for me, I'm going to say, hearing about Jesus as the great high priest is probably not going to do it. So if I'm marching on the beat and, and I hear, yes, he's greater than the high priest, he's the great high priest, it's probably not going to really help me say, oh, okay, yeah, well, let me endure till the end. It's not going to happen that way. So what we have to do, we have to do a little investigating. We have to find out a little bit more about how does being the high priest actually affect my day-to-day life to where when I endure hardships, it actually reminds me that he's worth it. So we're going to do, we're going to do a little nerdy time right now. I'm very sorry about that, but it's absolutely necessary. The high priest. Okay, chapter 5 outlines a, a lot of functions of the high priest. So we're going to go through those briefly. In the first verse, it says he's appointed based on his family. Uh, so essentially, back in... Israel, you have the 12 tribes, and, and, and they're all given lands to go and to settle and to farm and cultivate and all that stuff, except for this one family, uh, the Levi family. They're, they are not given land. They're essentially in charge with being, being in charge of the temple, sacrifices and teachings and all things like that. Um, so their focus is just on the temple. They receive everything from everybody else's um, labors and fruits of their, of their labors. Um, and so he's, the, the Levites are only for the temple. That's, that's it. That's their job. But even among this family, there's a chosen family, a chosen lineage um, that is in the line of Aaron that are the high priest. So there's only one person that performs this high priest function. We're going to learn a little bit more about him. Um, another thing is the, the high priest represents man to God. Um, so what we'll read about in chapter 5 is that um, the high priest, he goes in basically one time a year and he offers up forgiveness. He enters into this place called the Holy of Holies. This is like a, it's a room that represents the presence of God. It is so pure, it's so undefiled that there is only one type of person that can go into this room one time a year and he has to completely purify himself perfectly even to enter into that and to offer up his sacrifice, not only for the sins of the nation, but also for his own sins for the entire year. So it's this, um, he essentially is representing sinful man before a holy God and offering up sacrifices for sins. Another function of the high priest is that he graciously judges sinners. Essentially, he offers sins for the nation, but also for himself. He realizes, oh my gosh, I have my own weaknesses. I'm beset with my own weaknesses, it says in, uh, in verse 2. Um, so he recognized this can be very key as we learn about Jesus as the high priest, that he can sympathize. This high priest sympathizes because he also sins, and so he knows what it's like to be unrighteous before God, and we'll see that that's not the case with Jesus. But um, the gist of it is that he graciously judges sinners. He doesn't just deal out judgment. He deals out um, grace as he provides sacrifice for them. Finally, this is a called thing. He is on a mission by God to accomplish a specific purpose for the nation of Israel. Uh, so these are, this is not something that he can attain to. This isn't something that he goes to enough school um, and he can maybe one day be the high priest. This is something that's placed on him by God. There's no wavering from it at all. So this is the gist of the high priest. So still we're saying, okay, if I'm marching on the beach or if I'm enduring hardship, this still isn't really doing it for me. I don't really understand. So we'll go a little bit further. Next it says, um, he says in verse, uh, um, it's uh, verse 14. uh, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The first thing that we need to know as Jesus is the high priest is that he gives us perpetual intercession. Remember the function of the high priest one time a year, one time a year, he enters into the presence of God and he offers sacrifices for our sins. One time I carry the guilt of my sin for an entire year until the priest goes in on my behalf. 
I carry this with me, this guilt. What it means that Christ has passed through the heavens, it's not just that he, um, you know, sort of magically um, went up to heaven to, where, to wherever that is right now. Um, what it means is that he is with the Father currently. It means that he sits on the throne at the right hand of God and he advocates for us. He forgives us. It means that we have 24-hour intercession on his behalf. So Jesus doesn't magically float up to heaven and, um, and intercede for us at one time a year. He's constantly there. For those of you in here who are a believer, this has already happened for us. This has already taken place. Essentially, when I admit that Jesus has died for my sins, uh, when I admit that um, I am a sinner before holy God and there's nothing that I can do, this already happens. Jesus already advocates to the Father on our behalf. But for those of you who are in here and that's never happened, that's never been a reality for you, maybe you're just curious about the faith, it might be a little strange to come in here and to start listening to us talking about blood sacrifices. That's kind of weird, especially for our modern and American mindset. We come in here and we start talking about blood sacrifices and how crazy that is. Let me explain to you all what's going on. We have a precedent. So God sets the world in motion. He's got a way of doing everything. He spoke the world into being. Uh, but what happened was man sinned and separated themselves from God. So there is, um, we have tainted our relationship with God. We've forced a gigantic chasm between ourselves and a holy God. And so what happens is God says in the Old Testament, he says, okay, you have separated yourself from me. Your sin is evil and it is represented by blood. Blood has to be shed because of your wicked ways, because of your wicked sin. And so what they did in the Old Testament, in the um, ancient Near East, as they said under the Mosaic law, blood has to be shed for your sin. It's an image, it's a representation of how evil our sin is before holy and righteous God, and therefore somebody has to pay. But also, this is sort of a foreshadowing. Jesus, I don't know if y'all saw the, the Passion of Christ years ago, but do you remember how much blood there was involved in that movie? His blood was shed during the scourge. His blood was shed on the cross. They put the spear in his side and his blood flowed down the cross. His, his blood was shed on our behalf. He offers up the sacrifice for all sin, past, present, and future on our behalf. Powerful, powerful what Christ did and what he accomplished through the cross. So for those of you who have never understood this and never trusted in Christ, this is what it means to be a Christian is that I have, I recognize that my sin deserves punishment. It deserves death. We deserve death, but Jesus paid that death on my behalf, died that death on my behalf. And I believe in him. Um, So that's the first thing we need to know about Jesus as the great high priest. He offers perpetual intercession. Another thing that we need to understand is that he offers deep, deep sympathy. Um, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. When I hear about sympathy, I I don't know if this is a guy thing or cultural thing or, or, or what it is. When I hear sympathy, I usually am like, no, thank you. So um, I remember I played, um, uh, I, so I've gotten into trivia crack lately. I don't know if any of y'all have gotten into that. I am being demolished by one of my college students. I mean, she is demolishing me. It's so frustrating. And I think that she's cheating secretly, but she's been, in, so if she said, 
okay, Ryan, I'm crushing you. The score is clearly lopsided. Here, I'll answer a few questions wrong so that you can win. And so our questions, and so our score didn't look that bad. If she said that to me, that would send me over the edge. I'd be like, no, you will not do that to me. I've got too much pride for that. So I think of that sometimes as sympathy. Oh, I feel sorry for you, you poor person that is just ignorant with all things trivia. That's not what he's talking about here. Um, This word, our high priest who is sympathizing with us in our weaknesses, way more powerful than that. Um, There's a couple of things why the reasons why this verse is so powerful. The first is, it says that Jesus was tempted in all things, yet without sin. He is tempted in all things, yet with, as we are, yet without sin. So one thing that we need to know is that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable for God on our behalf by virtue of the fact that he was perfect. There was no blemish. There was no spot. He was absolutely righteous before the Father. This is why he can, he can, um, his blood can be shed on our behalf. Do you remember when in Matthew 4, when he goes out into the desert and he's tempted by Satan, what happens is he's been eating or he's been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. His flesh is weak. He is tempted. And so Satan comes to him in that moment of weakness and he says, hey, you're Jesus, you're God. Turn these stones into bread and your hunger will go away like that. And I know you can do it. So Jesus says, no, I'm on a mission of God. I'm not going to do it that way. Satan also tells him, hey, if you, um, if you just bow down and worship me, you won't even have to go to the cross. All sins will be forgiven. I'll make sure that everybody worships you and you alone. And Jesus said, no, I'm on a mission by God. I'm not going to do it that way. Satan says, Another time he says, go to the top of the temple, throw yourself off the temple, and angels are going to come, and they're going to rescue you and tend to you. And Jesus says, no, I'm on a mission of God. I'm not going to do it that way. And he ultimately says, get away from me, Satan. Uh, So what we see in that is Satan has offered him everything. He's tempted his flesh. He's tempted his mission. And Jesus is not able to fall into that temptation. He doesn't do it. So this verse is telling us, this is very important for us, uh, for believers to realize that Jesus was perfect, his sacrifice is perfect. But I think there's something else going on here. If I remember the Hebrew church who's wavering in their faith, they're struggling to, con- to um, maintain their confession, I realize that there's something else going on. Remember in the image, the guys are marching, all those men are marching on that beach, and they're marching toward their death what it means for Christ to sympathize, to feel the same as we do, is to realize that he was marching in front of him. See, Jesus goes, um, marches toward his death. This is why the Garden of Gethsemane is so powerful. Jesus goes in the garden and he says to the Lord, please, Lord, no. I mean, he wants to go to their own mutilation, and their own destruction, but he says, yet not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Essentially, Jesus shows us what it looks like to faithfully follow God, even to the very end. He shows these Coptic believers who are marching toward their death, he shows them what it looks like for a sympathetic high priest to march before them, to march beside them. He shows them what it looks like to receive the full brunt of the violence and the evil that this world and Satan has to offer and to endure it without wavering. He provides inspiration for believers to endure all things. So for me to recognize that Christ sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, it means that I realize that Christ has gone all the way. And he didn't waver, not even a bit. So he's with the men. He maintained himself without sin. Finally, for the great high priest, he's the giver of grace, mercy, and help. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is so backward to me. 
Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Uh, I think the first thing for us to recognize, let us draw near. That's an ongoing thing. Jesus has been ascended. He's gone into the heavens. He currently sits at the um, right hand of the Father. He uh, continually advocates for us. Therefore, we don't wait for every year for our sins to be forgiven. We go perpetually. We go always. Therefore, continually draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Um, another thing, I, I think when I would... Um, when I understood this verse previously, I, I had this image of confidence as being almost like this bravado, this, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm uh, my sin, I'm, I'm undone, I'm unclean, I'm impure, I'm unworthy, all of these things, but the blood of Christ is shed for me, so now I can approach the throne boldly, and I almost had this, like, almost enabled or entitled uh, mentality of what confidence means. And uh, after a closer look, I realized that confidence here is almost confessional. Confidence here uh, means this is a, a freedom of speech. I mean, really, it's not to, not to westernize the text, but this is a freedom of speech. This is the notion of being able to stand up in public and to proclaim anything and everything that I want to. So for us to continually approach the throne of grace with confidence is for us to speak freely about all things, all of my uh, sins, all of my failures, all of my insecurities, every corner of my life is exposed before Christ, my advocate. Confidence is something that is often under, misunderstood uh, among us. Have you ever had a moment when you um, were, maybe you were lying to somebody? I know we're in church, we don't do that, but maybe if you um, had a situation where it was, you know, the truth was complicated or, you know, I was afraid of the consequences if I told the truth, so I'm going to have this lie and you carry this lie, and the lie grows and grows and grows, and it's so overwhelming, and it bears down on you constantly. And, and then you have this moment where you say, I can't take it anymore, I'm going to fess up, and then you confess it to, your, um, to the person that you were lying against. It, it's one of the most painful and liberating experiences that you can have. I remember um, whenever um, uh, one of my roommates had this gigantic crush on my wife, and Okay, sorry. I realize sequence matters here. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so before <laughs> before dating my wife, my roommate at the time had this gigantic crush on her. And so I was like, this is guy code. We can't um we I can't go there. I can't like her, but all the while she and I are becoming great great friends and she's beautiful and so I'm like, oh my gosh, but no, guy code, guy code. Uh, so once so our our friendship grew and then I was like I was finally like, look dude, if you're not going to do anything, we got we got to have a talk. So um so I, I'll never forget this happened 15 years ago. We're sitting up late one night in our room and like any self-respecting man, I sat in my bed and grabbed my pillow and hugged it and I um um, and I just told him, I was like, okay, here's the deal. I try not to have these feelings, but I have these feelings for, I've been kind of hiding these from you. And, um, and, and, you know, we, we cried and embraced one another as you do. And, uh, and then I got married, which is great. Um, so, uh, but anyways, in that moment, I'll, I'll tell you, I was petrified of that conversation because I knew of the pain that it was going to cause him. But I couldn't contain it anymore. I had to confess it to him. When we approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, means that I come to Christ. It doesn't matter how I feel, how he's, how I think he's going to take it, how I think he's going to look at me, because all that stuff is wrong, anyways. What it means is that I have to confess to him. So that's what it means for us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Um, one of the things that's backward I mentioned earlier about this is who goes to a place of confession 
and doesn't re- receive consequences of their action. In, in other words, if I go to a judge, I have a little minor misdemeanor or I have a ticket that I'm trying to fight, whatever it is, and I go to the judge and I lay everything bare, I'm telling him, hey, look, I was speeding in a school zone. I get it. Let me tell you what else I've been doing. <laughs> when the cops aren't around at this intersection, I don't even bother to stop. Whatever, and I just start laying out my full list of things. What's the judge going to do? He's going to list out the consequences of my actions. I mean, he's going he's gonna, to um, uh, really hit me with it because all of my sins require um, consequences. But the good judge, the high priest, he doesn't do that. What do we receive when we confess to him? We, we receive mercy and we receive grace and we receive help. In, timely, in a timely fashion. So now I think back to the Coptic believers, to the persecuted church around the country, and they're saying, is this real? Is this faith thing legitimate? Maybe they're frustrated. Maybe they're angered that they're enduring hardship and suffering. Maybe that could drive a wedge between them and the Lord. And so what <laughs> the author here is saying is, confess, receive grace and mercy and forgiveness so we're not a persecuted church in College Station and Bryan, uh, far from it, right? So it's, it's, cool to, um, it's cool to be a believer and to do things that are Christianly. There's, a, there's this badge of honor with being involved in a bunch of Christian organizations. I work with at-risk children and, and, and youth, and there's certainly a badge that comes with that. So we certainly hold honor and esteem to, to doing Christianly things. So what in the world does all this discussion about a persecuted church have to do with us? How in the world does knowing that Jesus is the great high priest, how in the world does that affect my day-to-day? What I'll say is that to understand that Jesus is your great high priest means that when hardship comes your way, you don't shrivel up, you don't shrink back. When tragedy, consequences from your sin, unfairness, when all these things hit, you don't abandon hope. You move forward in faith toward the throne of grace. It means that you understand that the great high priest is advocating for you right now. No matter what you've done or said or thought or any of that stuff, the great high priest advocates for you right now. So how do we know if we have a true understanding of Christ as the great high priest? How do we know that? Or maybe a better question is, how do we know if we're not understanding Christ as the great high priest? And this is where it hits home for me. And I I should have prefaced by saying this, this this passage kind of messed me up a little bit, but in, in a really good way. I really enjoy this. But um, I have a tendency in my own sin and in my own failures, especially the ones that stay with me for a long time, I have a tendency to kind of come to the Lord and say, Lord, you don't want to hear about this again, so I'm just not going to worry about it. You're sick of listening to me dealing with this again and again and again, the same old thing that I've been dealing with, the same old things that I've been dealing with since I've been a believer. You're tired of it. So I have this tendency to not come to the Lord. I want to clean myself up and I want to show him and prove to him that I can do it, that I can get over this stuff. And so before I even approach the throne of grace with confidence, I try to clean myself up. And so Christ is sitting there and saying, I'm the high priest. I'm the one that offers forgiveness. I'm the one that advocates for you. I'm the one whose blood was shed for you. I don't care about your white knuckle effort to try to overcome this sin. I am the redeemer. I'm the high priest. 
See, I have no problem at all when I first become a believer. I have no problem at all recognizing, okay, I've sinned and I've fallen short of the glory of God and God offers, offers me forgiveness. Christ offers forgiveness. I got no problem with that. We, we, we've all done that. Um, the problem is after that when we have to continually go to him and to beg for forgiveness for the same old thing. For us to recognize that Christ is the great high priest that advocates for us is to recognize that we go to him confessing everything, receiving forgiveness and grace and mercy um, from uh, from God in Christ. So y'all are going to, I'm going to pray for us shortly and I want to pray for the church. And I actually, I would like to encourage you throughout this week to pray for the church across the ocean and to pray for them to endure well um, and to experience the peace of Christ in the midst of their hardship and for their blood, as uh, Pope Francis said this last week, for their blood to confess Christ to the nations. At your tables, y'all are going to talk about the things that hinder us from going boldly to the throne of grace. So y'all bow with me. Lord, we give thanks to you that you are our high priest and our advocate. Thank you so much for your forgiveness. It's not just offered one time, it's offered always for everything that we've done in the past, everything that we are currently doing, and everything we do in the future. Thank you, Lord. We have no other response but to worship you. Thank you. Lord, we pray for our brothers and our sisters abroad who are enduring evil and pain and suffering by the sheer fact that they love you. Lord, you promise that you will be their peace, that you will give them words to say, and we, Lord, we, we, we want to um, ask that you would be those things for them. We ask, Lord, that their testimony would spread your name and your renown uh, to the villages and to the nations. We pray that as the world looks on and sees the way that they're suffering, that they would be faithful to you. We pray that they would hold fast their confession of you. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't sin against them by forgetting to pray for them. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand how to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters abroad. Lord, we confess also that we have no idea what to say. And so we echo what John says at the end of Revelation, um, come Lord Jesus, because ultimately you were the one that ends it all. So Lord, we pray, come Lord Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Okay, y'all can go to your groups.